This is SermonSmith, a bi-weekly conversation about the craft of sermon preparation, and my name is John Chandler. Hey, all welcome back. Uh, actually, I have a little bit of podcast business to cover before we get into the great interview we have today. First of all, I really enjoyed my conversation on the last episode with uh, Jeff and Johnny from 200 Churches. Then I realized when I first published it, we actually had an audio issue, and audio was only in one ear. And so when I started to listen back which I do from time to time, and it's painful, believe me. But when I started to listen back, I noticed that the audio was only in one ear, and I couldn't even listen. And that might have been the case for you, but I got that fixed, and we uploaded it so that the audio is in both ears if you were listening with headphones or in your car. So if you weren't able to finish that one because of that audio issue, if you delete the one you have and then re-download, you should be good to go. Sorry about the hassle on that. But speaking of that, Really enjoyed that uh, that time with those guys, and then I turned around and I was a guest on their podcast talking a little bit about sermon prep, but also just about bivocational church planting, uh, you know, life. And it was good. It was good to talk about things, even though I love sermon preparation and preaching. It was good to talk about other things. Those guys have a great podcast going, so I encourage you to hop over there and learn, listen to that one and get a feel for what they are up to couple more things to say thank you for, which is, I said I wanted to start a little drive here to see if we could get from 40 to 60 iTunes reviews. We're up to 43, so let's keep it going. But thanks to AJ Nash for your nice comments, particularly about how it's been helpful for you to hear from women preachers as a woman preacher yourself. Thanks to J to the E for your review. And then RBC Brown. And I'm going to guess, I'm not sure, so if not, I apologize to RBC Brown, but I'm going to guess that RBC Brown is also Ronnie Brown, and Ronnie is also one of our newest Patreon supporters for the podcast. So, Ronnie, thanks for doing that, too, both the review and the Patreon support. Ronnie, I'm not ashamed to say, you know, and I'm sure you're glad to have me say, Ronnie also has a podcast called The Forgotten Podcast, which talks about uh, uh, just people in church history who have done interesting things, and he doesn't want them to be forgotten. So check that out at ForgottenPodcast.com. Thanks, Ronnie. And then finally, this one just came in like a little bit before I was about to record this intro. So nice timing for Ian Stamps. Ian also came in as a supporter on Patreon. Thanks, Ian, so much. Uh, One more thing, though, that I do want to talk about that's coming up is my good friend J.R. Briggs. J.R. was the first ever guest on Sermon Smith. And then he's also been a guest again, as he did a a proxy interview, if you might recall, for uh, C.H. Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon. And he's working on something. If you recall either of those interviews, you just know he's a thoughtful guy. He has, uh, part of his work is he does Kairos Partnerships, which is consulting for church leaders. And he's actually working on some online group coaching sessions where multiple people can participate at a time. And his first one is coming up on May 18th. And it's going to be called Six Practical Ways to Sharpen Your Teaching and Preaching. It's only going to cost $35. You can learn about it at kairospartnerships.org slash group coaching. JR is not sponsored on the podcast. I'm just telling you about this because uh, he's a friend, but I also think uh, think really highly of him. And he's offered to give away two, uh, two tickets to that for anyone. So be watching. Follow Sermon Smith on Twitter or find Sermon Smith on Facebook because they're on the social media. I'm going to uh, talk about how we're going to give away two tickets for that here coming up. There will be this podcast and one other, so we'll, we'll talk about that uh, here in the next month or so. Uh, but you can follow Twitter, follow Sermon Smith on Twitter. It's Easter week. Can you tell, man? I've had too many words. But yeah, Twitter or Facebook, we'll talk about how we're giving away those tickets. Or if you want to sign up, 35 bucks is a pretty great deal. All right, so let's get to this interview. My guest today 
is the Reverend Dr. Luke Powery. That's a that's an impressive title. So I asked him before we started recording. I said, "Hey, how do you how do you want me to address you?" And he said, uh, "Luke." So. All right, Luke it is. This is uh, Luke Power. Luke is the dean of Duke University Chapel and an associate professor of homiletics at Duke Divinity School. Uh, it seemed like it was a real honor and a, certainly a pleasure to talk to him and for him to make time to join us. And as someone who's devoted his life just to the craft of preaching, both in terms of his role there at the chapel for the university, but also for preaching at the Divinity School. Of course, he had some fantastic things to say. So let's just get right into it with Luke, also known as the Reverend Dr. Luke. Let's, let's start by describing your position. Uh, you know, I mostly interview people who are pastors in the local church, and they preach uh, you know, anywhere from two, three, four times a month. This is not your position, but there will certainly be some parallels. So tell us about what it means to be the Duke of, or the Dean, <laughs> the Duke. Yeah, Luke Duke. <laughs> <laughs> tell us what it means, uh, what it looks like to be the Dean of a university chapel, specifically at Duke Divinity. Sure, sure. And my just to, to clarify too, so I'm the Dean of the university chapel, um, which is the university's chapel, which is distinct oh, yeah. from the Duke Divinity School, okay. which has its own divinity chapel, which is called Goodson Chapel. But oh. I have a um, tenured faculty member in homiletics at the Divinity School. So I I sort of work in both worlds. Um, my primary appointment is the dean of the university chapel. And basically that role... Um, on one level is an administrative role, uh, report to the president of the university on his senior leadership group and function as the religious figurehead at the university. So I'm praying at commencement and convocations, um, but also I have administrative oversight of all of religious life at Duke, which would include about 22 chaplaincies. Um, which many of those are Christian parachurch or denominational campus ministries, but also there are it's multi faith. Um, you know, there's a rabbi and an imam, uh, Hindu and a Buddhist chaplain. But then also a part of my responsibilities, I oversee the chapel staff, and we have about thirty staff members. And basically, we do. Um, we have worship services. Um, the main one is 11 a.m. on Sunday mornings. But then there's also a choral vesper service Thursdays, um, other worship opportunities, periodic jazz vespers and that kind of thing. So for that worship service, um, I do I preach at least twice a month on a Sunday morning. And in terms of other we do, you know, we have a long history here of choral sacred music. So there's a music wing. We have student ministry staff members working with students really on the ground um, in small groups and community outreach and other other kinds of programs. We have um, a community, what we call community ministry, which is working particularly in the Durham community. We have a communications team. So it's, it's wide and varied <laughs> in yeah. terms of working on campus in the lives of faculty students and staff, but also we have some rich connections in the community working with various nonprofits who are dealing with uh, gun violence or homelessness um, um, and, you know, a whole wide range of um, various other 
organization. So it's a varied role. And so it's pastoral, it's administrative, I'm a professor too, um, and it's public, it's highly public. We're on YouTube, right. we're on radio stations, um, multiple, you know, YouTube channel, we're on all the TVs and the Duke hospitals. Um, so it's really an interesting place to to think about ministry and the do ministry. And I, and I mean, it, I don't know if this oversimplifies it, but it almost feels like it is a institution-sponsored campus church or similar yes. to a camp, what a campus yeah. ministry might look like. Yeah, I mean, there it is that it's definitely institutional because all of my staff members are paid by the university. Right, right. Um, and supported in that way. And But what's interesting is that it is that, and, and but then it's more than that. <laughs> it's like three sure, parts of, sure. of yeah. the institution or Duke Chapel. I mean, Duke Chapel is the icon of the university for sure. Like you see it on everything. And because yeah. of that, there's other activities in that space that have nothing to do with, um, let's say, worship or other religious activities, concerts and talks and that kind of thing. So that space is used for that. And then, of course, it's a center for Christian worship. I mean, that's what it's been known for. And then, of course, we moderate. And as I said, we, we oversee uh, all of religious life um, at Duke and, and, you know, the work that those chaplains are doing with students. So and, it's um yeah highly varied, <laughs> and the campus ministry uh, not I'm sorry not the campus ministry the chapel uh, services that you primarily preach in mm-hmm. those are that's still those are Christian faith services those oh, yeah. themselves are not multi faith without a without a doubt yeah what the service the worship services that Duke Chapel um you know sponsors unless there's an intentional interfaith something you know that happens but that's usually like a a vigil or something that may occur and, you know, it involves the entire university campus. So, but generally, yes, yeah, Sunday morning, Thursday, Vespers, Jazz Vespers, Tuesday um, service in the crypt. Yeah, these are Christian services. Yeah. yeah. And is it, uh, is most of the people who attend the services, are they primarily students? Are there people from the community who participate? Yeah, it's, it's both. I mean, the Sunday morning, which is sort of the high time, um, there are people from all over the region. And then, of course, there's Duke folks, faculty, yeah, uh, students, you know, staff and that kind of thing. But definitely it's a community church. I mean, a lot of people, which I did not know when I was coming here, I just assumed, you know, there would be a lot of Dukies <laughs> there. Yeah, yeah. And there are. But once I was greeting people at the door, the back of the church, realized that there are just people from all over coming to worship here. So. How, how would it play if somebody showed up in a Tar Heels jersey? <laughs> Not so good. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but hey, they've done better this year in basketball, at least. So they might yeah. take it all tonight. <laughs> I, I have visited uh, the, the chapel there at Duke. And the one picture I have, I, I mean, I have more than one, but one of the significant ones was that even the soap dispenser in the bathroom had the Duke symbol on it. <laughs> so well, nobody yeah. can, is allowed to forget where they are. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting uh, context to, to do ministry, you know, minist- preaching to devils, blue devils. So it's right, right. funny, there's some irony there. <laughs> what uh, prior to that, like, what is your background? What faith tradition do you come from? Yeah, I um, I'm ordained um, Progressive National Baptist from Union Baptist Church in um, 
Trenton, New Jersey, but I, I grew up in the Holiness Pentecostal tradition. Um, hmm. I'm, a, I'm a PK. My dad, you know, was a minister strong out of the Wesleyan Holiness tradition, but we connected to the Church of God down in South Florida, Miami, where I grew up, you know, as a kid and all the way through high school, stayed with them. Um, but as I went to university and seminary, and my father was had a very ecumenical ministry, you know, I attended a lot of Baptist churches, and etc. Um, and so I ended up being ordained in a Baptist church. Um, but prior, uh, after seminary, so I was ordained, I had a call from a church in Switzerland, the International Protestant Church of Zurich, Switzerland, um, which was an English-speaking congregation um, in there. And, you know, I went to serve there as an associate for about three years. And then after that, went back to grad school and then served a church in the music. I have a music background, music ministry of a um, Christian Missionary Alliance church, actually, Bayview Glen wow. in Toronto. Then, you know, I joined the faculty of um, Princeton Theological Seminary, which is where I did my MDiv. So my sense of calling and experience has been really crossing geographical boundaries, crossing denominational boundaries, um, and really doing ministry that way. I mean, that's that's just been, you know, my sense of calling, um, highly ecumenical. And, and Duke has United Methodist background, is that right? Yeah, historic Methodist ties um, okay. at the university, and they're still um, – Historically, like there's still a couple of bishops or at least Methodist ministers on the university trustees. Um, but the, the university is not a Methodist university. The divinity school, though, is still a Methodist divinity school, okay. deeply connected to the United Methodist Church still. Right. And that, yeah. that's where I was making that connection. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the, so the chapel services, they very much, I assume, then you try to I mean, just cross all traditions as far as Catholic, Protestant. Uh, it looks like, I mean, is there a sense of following the liturgical calendar and lectionary or most, how does all that play out? Yeah, most definitely. High church. <laughs> I'm yeah, a low yeah. church guy in a high church world right now. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so most definitely. I mean, it, it's um, high church. Some would say it's the kind of Anglican Methodist, you know, style in, in some ways. Um, on that Sunday morning, you know, service in particular. Um, but, you know, there are, there are glimpses of various traditions of, you know, when students get involved to do different things or we might try out different things. But Duke Chapel is deeply connected to the liturgical year, you know, the season of Lent as we are in sure. now. And, and then we follow the lectionary, um, which helps with worship planning and all of that. I mean, planning ahead and, so the choirs can kind of plan and the hymns and links yeah. to the sermon themes and that kind of thing. Yep. And, and it looks like you preach pretty, I mean, more than half the time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm more generally twice. Yeah. Twice a month on okay. average, but like coming up, obviously, uh, high holy times, I'm preaching more <laughs> generally. Right. Um, but yeah, on average, twice a month. And we still have services in the summer, which some university chapels don't. Um, there's really a kind of breathing congregation um, that's a part of our community. And so in the summer, I don't preach as much um, at all, kind of back off and actually get some vacation for part of it. <laughs> Good for you. That's right. You do that. 
Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> How about that? <laughs> yeah. Well, talk talk then about the mapping out of I mean, obviously you're guided by the lectionary, but talk about the mapping out of do you try to go through seasons where you'll say we're lectionary, but we're going to focus on the gospel passage for the season? Or how do you determine your text that you're going to mm-hmm. choose each time? Yeah, you know, it's funny because what I have been doing is basic. What I like to do is, yeah, I like to stick with a book if I can, you know, and the, so if it's the gospel, I don't feel like it as if I have to preach on the gospel all the time, sure. but there is something about following, staying with Matthew or staying with Luke over, you know, um, a season. It helps me with just focusing. Um, what I have been talking with our director of worship, we've been, um, talking about, you know, there's so much in the lectionary that is not in the lectionary, right? So much of scripture that's not there. I mean, the lectionary isn't the Bible. So what do we, how do we get to these passages, these stories, these other parts of scripture that are not in the lectionary? So what we're thinking about doing, we haven't implemented it and we won't do it this summer, but going forward into next summer in ordinary time, really thinking about exploring, do we take up a different book, you know, walk through a book that may not even be in the lectionary or other um, passages, or do we take a theme? So we're we're playing with the idea of what to do to go beyond the lectionary, particularly in ordinary time. Um, but we just haven't implemented that yet. You're bringing that low church. Yeah, we're trying to bring, <laughs> you know, the fusion, you know, a fusion, trying to mix low church, high church, even no church, be a place, a sanctuary for all people. So, and I, I, I'm I'm curious to know is is there any mandate for students to attend chapel x number of times per semester or anything like that? Oh, not at all. Not at all. Okay. <laughs> oh no, <laughs> I didn't. I didn't expect that was the case at Duke, but I wasn't oh, sure. Oh no. So yeah, you're happy no. with whoever shows up? Yeah. You're happy to get blessed. I'm still, you know, we're blessed. That I'm amazed that people still show up to hmm. hear a word from the Lord at Duke University on a Sunday morning. Like people are seeking and that people will drive an hour to come hmm. or 40 minutes, you know, that people still come to obviously worship God, but that they will sit um, in, intently listening to a sermon in this day and age. I mean, that's the miracle hmm. that people yeah. still are listening and people there, there's a hunger for sure. There's still a hunger, hunger. There's a lot of people who are seeking and have questions, you know, and doubts. And I think the university space provides um, a context where people can question, where people can seek, you know, there's a lot of, there's the anonymous ones and we're in a cathedral and people can just sit in the back or sit, you know, in a corner by themselves. They want to be anonymous. Maybe they, they've, you know, they're, they were a part of a church, but they were just, you know, drawn on to do everything, be on this committee and that committee. And they're just tired and yeah. it's their way of coming back you know, to the church in some ways, but they want to do it quietly and on their terms um, and anonymously. So it's, you know, it's, um, to me, it's a great gift that, that we still um, worship 
in this space, and and that all of this is really deeply um, supported by the university. <laughs> right. Yep. So, so if someone's in a local church, and you know, a lot of times they see the role of the sermon to some degree as the spiritual formation of you know these people who are individuals, but they're also like crafting the culture of the church they are part of and shaping the direction and the vision for that church. How much of that comes into play for you? Like, is for you is the sermon in a in a university chapel primarily about the formation of those who are there? Is there still some sense of forming? Because a lot of these people, you have a short period. Like, is there still some sense of forming a community of faith? Or just because of the nature of it, are you primarily focused on forming the individuals for further life, you know, wherever they may go? Yeah. I think it's both and, because there is a, there are probably half of the folks that come are like weekly. Other half are like visitors or they're regular attenders, meaning once a month they have their own church in Raleigh, but they're going to come to Duke Chapel once a month or twice a month. And so it's a different, you know, dynamic in that way. But I think it's both and. It's for the formation of sort of faith core for those who are core and then or just, you know, somebody who's just visiting from Colorado um, <laughs> who sure, happens sure. to be visiting their child, you know, at Duke for whatever reason. So for me, there is there over the long haul, over the long haul that of preaching, um, there is a sense that I think after a while that, yeah, I'm shaping with God's help, you know, and the power of the spirit um, people's how what what they think about God, you know, or what they think about the church or what they think about what's going on in the world or how even how they they read scripture. Um, and so I think even implicitly the formation is happening. If they listen to me after a while, you know, long enough, um, they're being shaped, you know, they're being shaped in a way. And for me in this space and coming from my background, that what I, I, I name what I'm trying to do, and I couldn't articulate that obviously early on, but as a, in my sermons, I'm trying to bridge worlds. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to obviously the scriptural world with our world today, but beyond that, the stories I tell, the language I use, that I'm also trying to bridge um, you know, this is, this chapel is kind of in the tradition of mainline Protestantism. So, but I'm, I'm trying to bridge Bach in the sacred or Beethoven with Beyonce. <laughs> this idea of bridging worlds because I know, I know that there are people who are watching or listening. I'm preaching beyond those who are there. I'm preaching to the people who are there, but I'm preaching beyond them to all of the varied kinds of listeners. And, and, um, but I'm also doing that because I believe that's how beautiful God is and how big God is. God is not made in our own, whatever image, whatever that may, our, our own tradition, um, or how we do worship, but God is so much bigger than that, you know? And so in implicitly, I think in what I'm trying to do, um, you know, many times is really bridge worlds. You yeah. know, it's, it, it is a kind of ser- homiletical, sermonic, uh, Pentecost, the idea of bringing together, and it may not be every sermon, but it's, 
bringing together these multiple voices or life experiences um, or or languages to really talk about God, but trying to do that in in one sermon. And if there's a place where that's as needed and necessary as any place, I suppose it would be, I mean, it, it's necessary in any sermon, but maybe all the more in a university chapel. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I like to get nitty-gritty here, so we'll go as nitty-gritty as you like to, just in terms of talking about your week-to-week process. What is it, what's it look like for you to put together a sermon? Obviously, you, you've got cool. the text mapped out for you at some point, but yeah. Yeah. amidst all of those other things that you're shaping or leading you know, within the religious life of the university, you're putting together multiple sermons a month. So, walk us yeah. through what it looks like for you to put a sermon together. Hmm. Okay. <laughs> well, one of the, um, you know, it's funny, right? Do, do what I say, don't do what I do. Um, one of the things, so first with the lectionary, probably ideally it doesn't always work this way, but let's say look, we take a semester at a time. So at the beginning of a semester, obviously we know what the lectionary texts are. I will choose one text uh, more or less per week. Um, that I will focus on for the sermon. So, you know, everybody else has that information. And then generally there's an inkling. There's something that strikes me um, in the passage that becomes maybe a theme or, you know, it, it, it provides a trail, a path perhaps that I'll go on. So then if you think about, um, you know, once I know what that passage is, Generally, um, you know, that could be weeks. That part of it could happen weeks before I actually preach. Right. And once I know the text or it could be that same week that. I'm, but so for me, it's first meditating on that passage and meaning I'm not trying. I'm just reading it and I'm letting it I'm letting it read me. <laughs> I'm I'm and, and I'm letting I'm marinating. Um, yeah. on it and and just without trying to do anything else just sort of taking in what it's saying or what's you know and and in that process words are standing out to me or images or even memories from the past or current events like connections begin to happen I don't know if they mean anything, but what I do is I note them down. I used to put them on a notepad. Now it's in my iPhone in my notes. You know, a thought comes, a connection, a song, a story. Um, and so I, I, as I marinate on that, these connections are being made, just my imagination. So then um, at that point, so that might be Monday, you know, and Tuesday. You have to know. Because of my pattern here, I'm right, I'm preparing the sermon really on Wednesday here because so some, yeah. so some of that happens week of, but you mentioned some of it you even have chances to do multiple weeks before. Is that just because it might be a week you're not preaching or yeah, exactly. Part yeah. of it is if I'm not on, I try to get ahead. You know yeah. how about that? <laughs> sure, sure. And part of it is the marination process, like to. You know, without thinking about commentaries and all of that, just sort of sitting with it, because I find that's where the ahas can come many times and giving it time and not being under a pressure cooker, you know, to have to put a sermon together. 
yeah. just sitting with that, those words of scripture, um, really, since I've been here in particular, that, that has been, and then out of that flows questions, you know, the, I, the connections that are being made, words, I start then looking at, you know, patterns that I might see, or connections throughout scripture that, you know, other stories, I take all of that, those images, those ideas, those questions, those memories. But at that point, I may already have an inkling of, oh, this may be the direction. I'm not sure, but this may be the direction. And then I'll, you know, I'll engage commentaries or, um, yeah, different commentaries, basically, um, and be in conversation with those, you know. And, and then at that point, the toughest part of preparing a sermon, I think, is, okay, you have all this information. How are you going to focus it? Hmm. Yeah. And, and what am I going to do? Because you're going to have to leave stuff out, information out. You're not going to, you know, all the stories or ideas that I thought of, that's not going to show up. So at that point, I then try to think about, okay, what's the heart of what I want, heart of the, the, let's say, the gospel message or the core message for this week? And then I start pulling it together. I mean, which is to me is the hardest part is how am I going to shape this sermon? You know, what form might it take? Or maybe it's just fluid. Um, yeah. But tr- actually putting the sermon together. And for me now, that happens on Wednesdays because by Thursday, hopefully it's done. And then we send drafts around to the staff, those who are presiding as they shape their prayers and that kind of, it's a draft. It's I'm not locked in, but then on Friday um, there it's actually printed because people, even though I don't feel locked in again to it. Um, but what there's been a long tradition here of having the sermon, a hard copy of the sermon in the back when people are leaving. Wow. So that they can take it and kind of digest it more, but they also have to know, that's not the most updated version because I totally feel free to rework it, to scratch stuff out, you know, to delete things because at the, after I preach on a Sunday, we'll upload what's supposed to be a more revised version to of the PDF, manuscript PDF, of the manuscript. Yeah. yeah okay. the PDF. Yep. Yep. Of the manuscript. And that's just been a long, long tradition here. It was, it took adjustment. I mean, really in terms of thinking about, Wow, having a draft, you know, by let's say noon Thursday, you know, it was just a, it just, it was a shift. I'm it panicking. Shift. <laughs> but after a while, now the pattern is set, and there's a rhythm, and I don't feel locked into it. You know what I turn in, it's like I'm free to preach whatever I want on Sunday. You know, but to help people, it helps others prepare. You know, and and make connections and with different themes and have a greater sense of what's what may happen at the service and, and that kind of thing. What, what percentage of that manuscript changes between what's printed in the back and what gets posted? Yeah. You know, it depends. I mean, I think many times it's similar. Um, it's not like verbatim, but a lot of it will be the same, but I have had times where I've scratched out whole sections um, so it's long and I do that maybe because of time or I just think, nah, this is not, I don't need this, you know, um, I don't need to say this, but there's, but there's also times where I don't, I have it printed, 
but I don't preach it, but it's still uploaded. I just don't preach it in that moment, um, but I keep it in the manuscript. I haven't deleted it from the manuscript. So there's sort of different variations um, on that, on how I do that. So you you offered some intrigue, which I I already have intrigue here about. You, you described the hard part is how it's all going to come together. Oh yeah, you know, and the structuring <laughs> of that sermon. So oh, yeah. how does that happen? What's that? You know, you've got all of these notes and all of these inklings about the text itself, and some sense of even how it's reading you. Mm-hmm. So what is your what's your process? look like on Thursday to, to form all of that into some yeah. kind of coherent message? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if there's a clear process. There isn't. I think what I used to do, right, is, you know, there's all kinds of sermon forms out there. And Ron yeah. Allen's book, Patterns of Preaching, is a great example that provides examples of different forms. Um, I used to, I worked with a, a man named Paul Scott Wilson, a homiletician in Canada who really has a great book, Four Pages of a Sermon. And the movement of that idea, it's met pages a metaphor, but it was the four pages. So first page, you're dealing with trouble uh, in the text, the biblical text. And then you move to trouble in the world that's parallel to the trouble in the text that you just talked about. Then you move to Grace in the text, which is basically what God is doing in the passage you were talking about. And then you move to uh, grace in the world, parallel mm-hmm. to what you just talked about. For a while, I was so, I was, I mean, I was, my, many of my sermons had that movement. But it's been a long time. Every now and then it still may pop up. But I don't, what happens to me now, it's much more fluid and organic. You know, I I think sometimes it may flow in the same way as the passage did. So in some ways, the passage, it's a sermon in a way trying to move in the way a particular story moved. Um, or it might be if, if this particular passage, the Revelation hymn from Revelation 5, ends in doxology, the pericope, um, that my sermon tries to do the same thing, you know, um, or, you know, it's just much more fluid and it, it flows where I don't have a set pattern in mind, but it's just uh, this inkling, this nudge, this discernment of, you know, well, I'm going to start right with the biblical text and jump right into the story. And then putting it together, it, it sort of unfolds, you know, in, in kind of retelling the story, but linking it to our world at different points with various, you know, contemporary stories or historical stories or current events. Um, so, you know, I don't really have a cut and dry, you know, I check the A box, the B box, C box. Now we have yeah. a sermon that has changed for me now over time. It's much more organic and fluid and um that's just how it is right now in this season. Um, there's nothing more I could say about that, you know, that's because all, I, I don't, recommend, I don't recommend, I mean, I, for a preaching class, you know, people who are learning, you know, experimenting, I think there's nothing wrong with saying, look, I'm going to try uh, to do, 
you know, which might be the tradition of the three points, you know, mm-hmm. and end with a poem, or I'm going to try, <laughs> you know, something else, the four pages of a sermon, or I'm going to try Samuel Proctor's uh, thesis, antithesis, and then synthesis movement. And, you know, to try these out, I think there's nothing wrong with that. But I just think the ongoing life of a minister, pastor, preacher is much more organic than that. And it flows not obviously through the li- out of the life of the preacher, but also the, the what's happening in the community of the church, the congregation and 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 then the world and somehow you know, it just, it flows from that, you know, it's, it's, I know that's amorphous, but um, no, that's what I got. <laughs> you, you did talk though about like all those extra pieces that, you know, aren't going to make it. Yeah. I, I yeah. most time I'm proud when I get those out before Sunday, there's certainly been plenty of times on Sunday afternoon where I realized which ones should have been dropped <laughs> as we all can relate to, but how how do you determine that? Like, as you're looking at all of these pieces, how do you determine what stays and what goes? Well, I mean, a part of it is I, I'm thinking, you know, what is too much, you know, um, because I think we can cram in like a typical sermon here would be probably 15, 20 minutes, closer to 20. Hmm. And I find myself a desire to even preach shorter sermons these days, because it actually, it's more disciplined to do that. And I feel as if it, people come, actually are more appreciative, you know, as, rather than preaching a 30 minute sermon. I mean, that can be dynamic and, but, um, but for me, it has to do with what less is more. Yeah. Less is more. And, you know, some sermons may just deal with the biblical text and really link that to our life, may have no outside story or from a piece of literature or anything to do with, you know, uh, you know, a ducalum or chemistry or the arts, or it may just be straight, you know, sticking with the passage. Um, and for me, it's just really, it's a big discernment process. Yeah. I mean, it has to do with prayer. It's a, con- I mean, for me, the whole process of preparation and the sermon, including the sermon and through delivery is really um, an act of prayer. And so through the whole process, it's a discerning of what, you know, should I tell the story or should I include this anecdote? And I think once you have the bulk of a sermon together, then you, you continue to work over it and, you know, you decide whether uh, something's missing here. You might think something is missing. You know, I need to tell a story in this location. You just don't have a story. And so you wait on it. You know, maybe it'll come. <laughs> maybe something will, you know, come to you or maybe not. But I think it's those hunches um, of taking something out or leaving something out or even including something. Um, and what's appropriate for this particular people on this particular day, you know, sure, um, sure. just having that, that kind of inner dialogue and sensitivity um, to, I think, the particular um, setting, yeah, context. It's just all good stuff to, to always be thinking about, right? Mm-hmm. It's always mulling it. Uh, one of my convictions, and probably one of the things that motivated this is, you know, as a 
as somebody who's a church planner and, you know, hopes to participate in seeing other churches started is that there's, there's probably more of a lack of opportunities or, or a lack of people realizing a calling or a giftedness they have for preaching uh, in the life of a church community. And that might be one of the things that holds back church planting. And mm. so that's been one of my hopes even for this podcast. And it's been fun to hear feedback from, and this certainly isn't true of everybody who listens, but mm-hmm. it's been fun to hear feedback from people who have said, I had no training in preaching. I just mm. I came out of a, you know, a prior vocation or, you know, I didn't go to seminary and I'm exploring this. So it's fun for them to hear and learn from this. Mm. Now, part of your role is your teaching, you know, you're teaching homiletics at the Divinity School. So I'm curious about that side of your life. Um, I, I guess a particular question, and you might have other better, you might have a better answer to give than the question I ask. I don't know, but <laughs> okay. I, one of the things that's been true is I've done these interviews, and some of this is tradition, but a lot of this is personality. Is hearing both how people's um, preparation differs based on their personality and somewhat their tradition. Uh, But then ultimately like what their sermon looks like. So as you're, as you've got these students who are coming through your homiletics class, this is a long question, long preface. As you've got these students coming through your homiletics class, how, how, like what is the best way you've found to help them find their voice or the method that most matches who they are in delivering, preparing and delivering a sermon? Yeah. I mean, I think the the best way to help students is to have them practice. And what I mean actually preach, which is the the privilege you have in seminary or divinity school. Hmm. They they actually preach three, you know, full sermons in the intro class, the introduction class. Mm-hmm. Three full sermons plus a, a short at the beginning there's like a short five minute um little oral presentation. So four different times they're in front of their peers and instructor um, at speaking and obviously preaching, you know, three sermons. And I think it's the, through the actual doing of it, not talking about preaching, but actually doing it, that one begins to discover um, their voice you know, metaphorically and literally. Um, and those are linked to one's vocation and trying to, but one has to actually practice, meaning go through it, actually do it, actually preach, and pre- then, you know, have a conversation. I think have your peers or colleagues, um, you know, give, give the feedback. Because it's in that that I think one discovers. If we, if we would only talk about preaching, Right. And 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 the truth is, listening to preaching is helpful, too, in the process, because you hear how others do it, Mm -hmm. um, whether they're discovered, they have discovered their voice or are trying to discover. I think that's a helpful, you know, you situate yourself in relation to others, not that you're trying to duplicate somebody else's voice. You really want to do you. You want to be who God has called you to be. So what I have found very helpful is the more someone can embody the word, meaning actually preach, right? Even reading of scripture is proclamation, public reading of proclamation. The more one can do that is helpful in this process. 
of trying to discern what one's voice is, um, what's one's style, um, what works maybe for you, what doesn't work. But I think it's also one has to, I think, should be open to being called to a variety of places because the gospel travels. So you might be called to preach in a church plant or called to preach in a storefront, but you may also, God may have you preach in a cathedral. Hmm. So to have the sensibility, enough sense of who you are, who God has called you to be, your voice literally and your style, and to be able to have uh, a kind of homiletical arsenal, flexible enough, a wide arsenal that you can draw on to proclaim the gospel in different settings, I mean, becomes very important, I think, um, yeah. you know, as we as we move forward. But doing it is key. <laughs> sure. Yeah. And I, I mean, I see, I'm looking at the chapel schedule. I see you even at a student preacher this yeah, week. We sure did undergrad. Yep. Is that a common thing? We do that every year, once a year. Yep. Yeah. Student student preacher. Yep. Sunday. Yep. And then how? What is for that, or even in your classes? What's how do you find the proper level of grace and critique and evaluation? <laughs> sure, someone's put, I and I ask this for all of us to like, you know, be thinking about what it looks like for us. Yeah, I think you know. I've always told my students the feedback, the peer feedback, is really the goal is always for the building up of the individual. Mm-hmm. It's never for the tearing down, um, because we do we have a great we we do great. I think at negative critiques you know we can be negative but it's hard i think at times to give positive feedback to people and and seeing that and framing that as pastoral right both um the the challenge or the critique but as well as the affirmation so i talk about affirmations and suggestions as a way to ultimately build up someone to help them grow as a preacher um you know, with the student preacher, the process there is there are students that turn in a manuscript initially. And then and we haven't done it where there's an audio. I mean, we might end up changing that, but they turn in a manuscript. But many times these are students that we know already. I mean, we know who they are and, you know, their personalities and all of that and what they're connected to and involved in. Um, but then there's a committee that, you know, Reevaluate the manuscripts, um, and then eventually from that, you know, chooses a student. But then that student engages with divinity profs or staff, um, or even some of the chapel staff to work on to improve the sermon, to talk it through, and so they're getting feedback from a wide variety of people. So they're, in a sense, a community that really is supporting them um, to put their best foot forward, you know, on that Sunday. Yeah. Um, so I think they feel supported. We make it a big deal. They feel honored, these undergrads. We have a special dinner for them um, with what we call Friends of the Chapel donors um, the night before. Then they have, you know, a lot of their friends are there and our, my staff had lunch with them, for them, after the service. So it's a big deal, you know, and to try to encourage them. Who, who knows? They may be doctors or lawyers, you know, at the undergraduate. These aren't necessarily students that 
they say, oh, I'm going to be an ordained minister or I'm going to, but um, they, you know, they, they feel called to, you know, speak a word um, yeah. to us. So, Fantastic. Yeah. Uh, well, I am aware our time is running short, but I know um, I'd love to hear just some resources from you. Either I'd love to give you some space to talk about your own preaching books, because I know you've written a few. Uh, but I'd also love to even hear other resources that you think are helpful. You've mentioned patterns of preaching and four pages of a sermon, but other resources that have been helpful for you mm. in learning how to preach. Mm-hmm. Good. Um, well, I, I think, I mean, my own books, there's three. There's Spirit Speech, Lament, and Celebration in Preaching, which really takes a look at thinking about how the Holy Spirit is at work in our preaching, pneumatology of preaching and in preaching, hmm. and specifically thinking about lamentation as an expression in our sermons. Because in the literature, in the field of homiletics, there's been really some work, much work done on celebration. What's It's called celebration, yeah. particularly in African-American traditions. And and I think to the neglect of what I call lamentation. And so this was a way to sort of broaden that conversation. The second book, Dem Dry Bones, Preaching Death and Hope, is just that, about thinking about death, thinking about its relationship to hope, um, but doing that through the lens of the spirituals as musical sermons. Hmm. Um, and really reclaiming the expression of hope um, as key to, you know, what uh, our goals, you know, should be in preaching. Um, Then, um, more recently, a year ago, so I co-authored with Sally Brown, who teaches at Princeton Seminary. We did an introductory to preaching textbook, introduction to preaching textbook, and we did this taking up some new themes that may not be in introductory um, preaching textbooks such as prayer, chapter on prayer, um, a chapter focused on body. We begin with a kind of spirit-driven theology. I mean, Sally, you know, we, we did it intentionally as great colleagues, but also to cross the boundaries. She's female, I'm male. She's Presbyterian, I'm Baptist, right? Mm-hmm. She's white, I'm black. So we did this intentionally um, to to really, I for me, it was also to demonstrate this this idea that people can work together to cross boundaries and really seeing that, embrace that as a work of the Spirit, and what would that mean for these, really a dialogical model of teaching, um, preaching. So that's what we do um, in that book. I think, for me, um, a couple of books that have helped me, I mean, Four Pages I mentioned has been, really gave me the strong, what I would call theological turn in preaching and the heavy emphasis on God asking, don't forget God in your preaching, right? To ask, where is God in this passage? What is God doing? Because if we never ask about God, we may never talk about God in our (laughs) preaching. Yeah. Right. So, so that was a critical book. I would also say, um, the heart of black preaching by Cleophas LaRue. Cleo LaRue, who really gets at, once again, a kind of hermeneutic. What is the, what he would say, the key or the core um, in in black preaching expressions, that this idea that God, the hermeneutic of God that he talks about is being key. Um, you know, the classic 
introduction book, or at least one of them is Tom Long's Witness of Preaching. Sure, yeah. Which has been influential um, across the board for just the wide um, spectrum of, you know, introducing someone is still, I think, had an impact um, on me. There's another um, book by um, Pascarello, Michael Pascarello. Mike talks about, um, and his book is to, oh, I'm going to mess up the title, <laughs> but it, it, it is, it's to be known as, to, to know as we are known. It's, it's basically this kind of spirituality of preaching, bringing us back to prayer, bringing us, and, and for me, that we don't normally think about that per se. We don't normally think about, we might think about the techne in preaching, our skills, our language, the sermon form, um, our exegesis, and these kinds of things. Excuse me. But what Mike helps us reclaim is really the depths of one's own spiritual life and how that feeds and funds one's preaching life and the connection between the two um, has been really critical to me uh, for my um, and thinking about. So though, I mean, those are some, you know, there's, there's many more, the work of Henry Mitchell, black preaching as a trailblazer has been key, um, in my own, um, thinking, um, in particular, um, trying to think if there are others, James Forbes has been helpful. PT Forsyth, which is a classic old book, um, Hmm. positive preaching, but PT Forsyth is Lyman Beecher lectures, um, I think it's also, I don't know, something about a different generation, Charles Spurgeon's lectures on preaching. Yeah. There, there, there's something that late 19th century and then coming into the earlier part of the 20th century, even Dietrich Bonhoeffer's lectures on preaching. There's something, a, there is a, man, it was the way they write too, but what they're talking about, there was something at stake. You know, there's, there was a theological core, but it was, it's what I talk about in Dem Drive. Oh, as a, as a mat, it is preaching is a matter of life and death. Hmm. It's not about the latest joke or being cool or hip. You know, it's about, it's about telling death to go to hell. It's about what I call, um, having a preach off with death. Tom Long would say that death is the other preacher at a funeral, but I would say death is the other preacher every Sunday morning or whenever we hold worship. And so there we are proclaiming a word of life in the Valley of Dry Bones, right? And hopefully breathing life, saying what the prophet said in the Valley of Dry Bones, you shall live, you shall live. And so I, those, some of these of an older generation, for me, really capture um, the essence of what preaching can be. Um, and, and, and some of the homiletical gymnastics that we may experience today is really, I think, missing the point, hmm. um, because people are coming to meet God and they're really coming for life. They're coming to experience life and hope and not um, just to be wowed by eloquence or any of that. Yeah, not at all. Not at all. And, and I think that's. For me, it brings me back to the core of 
really asking, what is my motivation for preaching? Why do I preach still? And what am I hoping for? You know, what am I praying for? Um, And I didn't pick that up in seminary. (laughs) (laughs) I picked that up by, you know, following Jesus, you know, and growing up in a Christian home and just living out the faith before I went to seminary. And I think we can, um, we can lose sight of the reality of people's lives when we're in educational institutions at times. And I speak as a professor that we can miss the point, right? That there are people who are dying literally and figuratively all around us, even at these institutions. So what are we doing? You know, what are we hoping for? when we're preparing sermons and when we're actually preaching. Thanks for that. Mm-hmm. Some of that's going to find its way into my sermon this week for Passion Sunday. <laughs> 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 sermon prep happens all the time, right? It does. <laughs> and it shows up. <laughs> the aha show up at the funniest moments. <laughs> if I quote you directly, I'll credit you in that. <laughs> Uh, it's the oral tradition. It's, it's the on oral the record. <laughs> <laughs> well, Luke, thank you very much. Oh, thank you, John. Is there uh, for people who want to? I mean, your the the sermons are all on our. <laughs> I, I've obviously been talking too long. Your sermons are online at chapel.duke.edu. Mm-hmm. But uh, if do you have any other online presence? If somebody wants to keep up with what's happening with you or the chapel, Twitter or a blog or anything yeah, like that. Sure. Um, yeah, you can find me on Twitter just um at Luke A Powery. Yeah. Um and I'm on Twitter, Duke Chapel's on Twitter and follow us on Duke Chapel on Facebook as well. And I'm on Facebook. I mean Luke Power, you'll find me uh there, but I'm more, you know, Twitter I do I have some more I'm more active um there. But yeah, definitely. All right. Well, thank you so much. Okay, thank you. Appreciate it. Appreciate the conversation. Yeah, blessings. Thank you, Luke. Thanks for making the time. Enjoyed that one so much. Once again, follow on Twitter or Facebook for the upcoming giveaway for the uh, teaching and preaching group coaching session that our friend J.R. Briggs is going to be doing. And now that we're wrapping up, jump over to iTunes to review or head over to patreon.com slash sermonsmith to support the podcast. Thanks, everyone. Thanks.